Hi everyone, Anthony Fantano here, internet's busiest music nerd, and welcome to another edition of the Needle Drop Podcast, our weekly review roundup podcast where we take some of the best reviews and thoughts from the Needle Drop and Fantano channels, bring them together into these compact, convenient episodes. This week, I'm going to be talking about a myriad of pretty great records, the latest math rock endeavor from the band Polyphia, definitely one of my favorite, more technical and flat rock albums of the year. Also digging on the brand new technical death metal album Idol from the band Horrendous. Do not miss that review. It is very glowing, incredible, powerful album that rips from front to back. Also the new Quavo record. Quavo, one third of the Migos, is breaking off from the group uh, to do a little bit of a solo endeavor. Quavo Huncho. Also going to be talking about the latest offering from Pop experimentalist, pop progressivist, Clarence Clarity, Think Peace is the name of the album, and one of the most hard and aggressive track records of the year, the new City Morgue album, Hell or High Water, Volume 1. Also going to be dropping a few track reviews on the latest offerings from Joji, as well as a posthumous song from Little Peep, and a bit of a thought piece on Drake coming out talking about his views on the whole Kanye, Pusha T beef, and how it affected him, and basically the lead up to that beef, and what he supposed uh, was what led to that information about him and his son leaking to Pusha T. So those are what we're going to be looking forward to in this episode of the Needle Drop Podcast. Strap in, get ready. And it's time for a review of the new Polyphia album, New Levels, New Devils. This is the new and third full-length album from instrumental rock band Polyphia. Or is it Polyphia? Is it Polyphia? Pol-li-pahee. Well, it's, it's not that. Polymanipia. These guys are Texas-based. They've been at it for the good part of a decade now. Previously, they made a name for themselves as a progressive metal outfit with records like Renaissance and Muse. Albums that I missed entirely, but going back to them, I probably wouldn't have reviewed them favorably anyway, as they feature this really smooth and ultra-sanitized brand of very mathematical progressive metal, which I've heard a lot of bands pull off over the years. It mostly just sounds like elevator music for metalheads to me. I'm glad my introduction to the band is through this record because I'm finding the material on here to be so much more compelling in about every way imaginable. This record is not so much of a metal release as much as it is a math rock endeavor, and the band pretty much takes to this style like ducks to water, like cute, little, furry, adorable baby ducks. <laughs> the detail they spin into these tracks melodically and structurally is incredible. Also liking the sweet melodies and infectious grooves on this album too. It is a groovy, funky, physical album. And these elements make the record pretty digestible despite the fact that a lot of what's going on instrumentally is pretty dizzying. The production on this record for the most part is very clean. Not dirty by any stretch of the imagination outside of some of the guitar tones, but we will get to that later. So the sound of this thing, it's pretty squeaky clean, but there's a lot of instrumental flavor. The drums on this thing are so punchy, so high definition, every one of them comes out so clear. The bass has a bold, springy, trebly tone to it that I like a lot. It really roars in the mix. And the guitar tones on this thing are fantastic. Really slick, very bright 
I occasionally they have this really weird, somewhat distorted, fuzzy, overblown, squishy tone to them that I like a lot. Gives them a bit of a, a growl. Rare. And the playing, the performances on this thing are nowhere near as straight and smooth as I found them to be on the band's previous efforts too. And that's not to say that the playing on this record doesn't have finesse it certainly does. I mean to say a lot of the bass lines, a lot of the leads, a lot of the rhythms on this thing are a little herky and jerky, angular, knottier. It's one thing to have the technical skill to bust out these really noodly riffs or leads that are difficult to make heads or tails of. Just like you're a robot playing a quickly randomized set of notes just to show the listener how much speed you can attain. And it's another thing to apply that technical ability to some impeccably expressive playing. The guitar chords and the melodies on this thing really sing out. I also like a lot of the rhythmic switch-ups on these tracks too. They really add to the groove and the flavor and the structure of these tracks. It allows the band to shift creatively into different speeds and time signatures and directions. In a lot of ways, the sharp drums, the bright guitars, the mathematical grooves and everything, it kind of reminds me of like a great Battles album, but not nearly as experimental or weird. I don't think these guys have any interest in sounding quite as goofy or off the wall. Stylistically, I think these guys have more in common with the current league of virtuous but near soulless math rock bands out there that can play like hell, but their performances and their writing have as much flavor and flow as like a inkjet printer, processing 30 copies of a quarterly finance report. By comparison, the playing on New Levels, New Devils, though, is fiery. And I also love how often on this album the band is able to reach outside of Math Rock's creative touchstones. The speedy melodies and rhythms on the track OD actually take on a subtle Latin flavor that's pretty amazing. The band just kills it on this track. The drumming, the plucky guitar leads, the synchronicity of it. Some of the more melodic guitar phrasing on the track Yes comes off pretty much like that of an R&B tune. Yeah, effectively the band makes an instrumental R&B track here and it's pretty great. I love how they're able to capture the vibe of that genre through the melodies, through the chord progression, but the very intricate and flashy drums and guitar work keep it strictly in the math rock genre. And while it's not my favorite on the record, the band does work in a vocally led cut on here that has a very groovy, nostalgic, summery vibe to it. Sounds like something that could have been on an old Toro y Moi album. The song Drown is one of the most mellow and beautiful tracks on the entire record, but it also features some really subtle electronic embellishments, some little touches of synthetic drums too that come off a bit like they're out of a trap song. And the band also invites on a number of guests who bring quite a bit of flavor to this record too. Fellow guitar and bass prodigies who you can catch some pretty viral performances from around YouTube. People like Yvette Young and Ichika, Mateus Asado, as well as Eric Hansel and Mario Camarena from the band Chan, whose guitar work on the track Yes adds to the gorgeous insanity of the tune. While there are a few songs on here that come off a bit milder than others or maybe tread a little bit of water, like, okay, you've pretty much done this already, and I'm not really sure how much this song really adds to the overall sound and flow of the album. You're kind of repeating yourself a little bit here. Again, despite that, I find a great deal of this record to be really exciting, engaging, refreshing, whether it be the starting track, Nasty, which kicks off with these beautiful hypnotic 
angular guitar melodies. Then the band shifts into this really sinister math rock that puts my head into like a cerebral yoga session, twisting it in every direction. Then there's also the flawless reverb melodies at the start of the track, Death Note, which definitely sound like a, an internal monologue moment for an anime character who's about to make a really important decision. The song Saucy certainly lives up to its title with its sassy and nimble guitar leads throughout that occasionally shift into these sharp, sweet-picked, squawking chords. It's one of many moments on this album where some of the guitar embellishments get really jazzy. And the song Goat is not only a strong closer, but also the way the track is structured to me reads almost like the band was trying to pull off a bit of an EDM vibe with some of the instrumental transitions and buildups and groove changes, some of the electronic effects surrounding the segues on this thing. Again, I love the way the band is able to reference all of these styles while staying really true to their core sound. The album is also just 10 tracks, 37 minutes long, not a whole lot of room for fluff or BS or filler. It's really straight and to the point, and I think it's better for it. Because not only do I think the band started to run out of ideas at one point, but also playing and writing this dense can get a little tiresome after a while, and I think they, they brought it to the perfect length on this LP. Overall, really great album from a band I was not anticipating I would enjoy a record from, from a, a particular blend of math rock that is not usually my cup of tea. But the production, the writing, the performances, the versatility on this record, it's, it's really something to behold and something I really can't not compliment uh, to a very high degree. Again, despite the fact that this is not one of my prime genres. Feeling a light to decent eight on this thing, Tran, Zition into the next review. <sighs> and it's time for a review of the new horrendous album, Idol. This is the fourth full-length album from American death metal band Horrendous, making their Season of Mist debut. Maybe you haven't heard of these guys before, but they have been together as a group for 10 years now, so they are nothing entirely new. Their past three albums were released right under my nose. This ass-kicking band existed the whole time, and I didn't even know. And while Horrendous fits pretty squarely into the death metal genre, they're a pretty versatile group, with previous albums taking on more of a heavy metal or a thrash metal style. Melodic death metal is also a sound they've dabbled in here and there. Meanwhile, their debut is actually a, a very meat and potatoes death metal album, from the buzzsaw guitars to the guttural growled vocals. I mean, pretty much a standard death metal album. In comparison with their newest LP, they sound like a totally transformed band. Yes, still a death metal band, but if you told me that the, these two albums were made by the same group, just based off of a, a blind taste test, I'd have a hard time believing you. So Horrendous has undergone quite an evolution since their debut LP, to the point where comparing the sound of their earlier albums to now is almost apples and oranges. Though going back into their discography, each Horrendous album up until this point is pretty good in its own right. However, Idol, in my opinion, is a serious achievement for the band. A band that sounds like their skills and their creativity are improving greatly with each new record. And it's kind of ironic that this album sees the band diving deeply into a more technical death metal sound, which usually is not my cup of tea. A subgenre of death metal I am very picky with, because if it's too clean, it's too predictable, it feels too 
robotic and perfectly produced, it's an instant turnoff. It's a no for me, dog. Though this decade so far has not been without some great tech death releases. From Gorguts or Dying Fetus, also Beyond Creation and the first Artificial Brain album. I'm into a little Obscura and Ulcerate, but I can only really take so much of their material at a time. But this new horrendous album quickly became one of my favorite tech death releases of the decade. And it's so fun, it's so quick, it's so thrilling to listen to. There's a lot of tight and flashy playing all over this record with a nice human touch, aggressive performances. The guitars are played like these guys are freaking animals. The drums just get beat to death on this record too. And the guitar passages, while technical in spirit, are also really catchy. Lots of dark, sticky melodies coming out of these guitars. Also, tons of fretless bass with a tone that really pops out in the mix. It's rare that you hear bass standing out in this particular genre of death metal or really in death metal at all, which I guess is a big similarity between this record and some of the other Tech Death albums I mentioned earlier. The Gorguts record has some pretty strong bass lines on it. Beyond Creation is also known for their use of fretless bass, but I think Horrendous's application of it as well is pretty sharp and creative. A lot of the tracks on this album are multifaceted, intricately written, great flow from segment to segment to segment, and some animalistic vocals. Great vocals on this thing. Not the typical guttural growls that you'll catch on a lot of death metal albums or Horrendous's first album. I liken the singing or the screaming on this album to be more like that of, I don't know, a, a, a strained, angry werewolf, or like the vocals on a Weakling album, let's say. If, you, if you've heard the band Weakling before, if you haven't, please listen to Weakling. Although it also depends on the track you're listening to as well, because occasionally the band does work in some campy, clean vocals to liven a track up or add some variety, add some harmony, like on the closing track or on Divine Anhedonia, which also comes complete with these creepy Vincent Price-esque spoken word vocal passages, which are Kind of weird. I love them though, they, they certainly send shivers up my spine. Also some very eerie, clean vocal harmonies on Soothsayer that I think are pretty great too. Even though some of the clean vocals on the second leg of the song Devotion I found to be pretty awkward, I think a lot of the smoother singing on this record adds a lot of flavor to the album. Another thing to note is this album is 40 minutes long and eight tracks in length, so it's pretty straightforward, pretty punchy. Not a death metal album with a whole lot of room for error, and the band certainly seems aware of that, as this is a very no BS release with very little in terms of flab on it. There's a dramatic little intro cut on the album, a short instrumental threnody uh, just before the last cut of the album. So essentially there are six core songs on this record that rip from front to back, each of which seems meticulously assembled, as the band just doesn't really put a single lull anywhere into any of these songs. It's so goddamn watertight. It's relentless mayhem. And when I say that, I don't mean it just sounds like the band is just endlessly beating the crap out of their instruments because there is certainly a method to the madness because there seems to be a lot of forethought going into every riff, every note, 
every drum beat, every transition. They're not just letting it rip on a jam. They are playing through very aggressively and very fluidly these intricate little tech death ragers. The Idolator, for example, kicks off with a very nice, open spacey, ominous intro. Some sparkly guitar arpeggios shimmer very nicely against some expressive bass soloing. Then the band explodes into the main theme riff with some really expressive drums. They hit this groove at full speed in the main section of the song where they kind of bring out like a thrash metal flavor for a second. Later, some really interesting chord phrasings as well as mathematical guitar leads. Also love the way the track fills out with these harmonious background vocals. Again, this is one of many tracks on the album that works in multiple phases, but each phase really keeps the momentum high. As for track after track after track, the band hits great grooves. They build up fantastic tension. They break out into these surprise passages that either slow things down or present a new idea entirely. I mean, some of my biggest gripes with the tracks on this album is that I, I wish they were longer. Like the track Divine Anhedonia that I mentioned earlier, the, the cut is five minutes and there is so much packed into it. It feels almost half that length. And again, I just love how the band can throw so much into a song, throw three songs worth of ideas into one song, and yet it all sticks out. It's all processing really cleanly. It's not like just a bunch of random crap to disorient the listener to make them feel like they're hearing something really interesting. The song Devotion is another highlight on this album for me, though nearly every track on here is. It kicks off with one of the most badass, throttling riffs of the entire record. It's one of the few moments on this album that not only reminds me of some of the other tech death bands I mentioned earlier, but also the technical thrash outfit Vector, which, believe me, that is not a bad comparison to get that is not bad company to keep. The closing track, also a highlight, is an eight-minute monster, and the band really does save the best for last. And while eight minutes uh, is not the longest metal song in the world, they pack so much into this song that it becomes an explosion of color. Yeah, I'm, I'm just so highly impressed with this album. I'm just loving it, and yet I'm also starved. I just want more. I would love to hear the band get more ambitious with how all of these tracks come together as an overall idea or a concept here, a bit more interesting flow in between these songs, but as is, uh, this is a really great release. So much guts, so much focus on this record, so much raw energy, but also the maturity to hone it and focus it into these really creative compositions, as this album is not just visceral and physical, but it's also uh, cerebral. It's very much a head game, too. This thing is just wall-to-wall -wall fantastic writing, production, performances, definitely one of the best death metal releases I've heard this year. I'm feeling a light to decent nine on this thing. <laughs> Before we get into one of our next reviews, I want to give a shout out to one of our sponsors in this episode of the podcast, the Ridge Wallet. These guys make these really nifty, metal-plated, conveniently money-clipped wallets that are much slimmer and more minimalist than your old, bulky, disgusting leather wallet. Get rid of it and replace it with something that is much better, much sleeker, fits right in your front pocket, very convenient, very sharp, been rocking mine for months and months now and loving it. Hit up RidgeWallet.com slash Fantano and use promo code Fantano for 10% off your first order. And on with the next review. And it's time for a review of the new Quavo album, 
Quavo Huncho. This is the newest album from one third of the Hot Lanta hip-hop trio Migos. Ever since Migos exploded into the mainstream, fans and critics alike have been going back and forth talking about what is their favorite member of the group and which one might have the most solo viability uh, if they break off from the trio. And we've gotten whiffs of that up until this point with each respective member doing a variety of features. We have Takeoff's Intruder single, uh, Offset's collaborative record with 21 Savage without warning. Quavo actually had a recent collaborative record drop with Travis Scott as well. But no member of the Migos so far has shown themselves to have the wherewithal to carry an entire project on their own or had even taken the risk to show if that was possible. Until now. Quavo, typically the member that sticks out in Migos' various recordings because he has the highest vocal register and a somewhat goofy voice. And he's not only decided to drop a solo album, but a 66 minute solo album. Which, considering Quavo's lyrics, typically his artistic track record and Migos' recent output, it's not that exciting of a prospect. I don't really think it's out of line going into this album to assume that Quavo doesn't really have it in him to dominate an entire hour's worth of material and have it be fire from front to back. But surprisingly, Quavo kind of holds his own across the length of this record. It's not nearly as bad as I thought it might be going into it. He doesn't exactly reinvent himself or take any huge risks or anything, but he does show that his dependency on takeoff and offset maybe doesn't run that deep because he seems entirely capable of drumming up the catchy flows and weird animated ad-libs that you typically catch in Amigo's song entirely on his own. Not that it was ever rocket science or anything, but I think a lot of music fans and critics assumed that there was some kind of secret sauce or special recipe to what the Migos did that couldn't just be recreated by one man. And it turns out you pretty much can't. With the project actually sounding slightly more tolerable than Migos' recent album, Culture 2, which by comparison with Quavo Huncho was overloaded with way more tracks, and save for a few catchy tracks that broke out as hit singles, the album mostly felt like the trio just resting on their laurels, going through a wash, rinse, repeat cycle until they hit almost two hours of material. On Quavo Huncho, though, it seems like there's maybe more of a focus to keep the record at a reasonable length. He can't just rely on the other two Migos to just pad these songs out and kill time and create filler. As a result of that, it seems like he works a bit harder to pick a greater variety of beats and a lot of features to kind of break up the monotony of this project too. It feels a bit less like he's throwing as much shit as he can at the wall just to see what sticks. The best thing Quavo and this album have going for it is that there are a number of tracks that drum up a pretty good vibe, bring some quality production and some pretty cool features. On his feature, 21 Savage hits one of the most aggressive deliveries and fastest flows that I've ever heard him drop on a track. Also, that Yeezy slides line was pretty funny. Uh, he, he pretty much makes the whole song because for the most part, Quavo's lyrical contributions to this track are boring and borderline trash, especially when he just devolves into skirt, 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 I'm sure there were a few people out there thinking, Quavo, he wouldn't just half-ass his own album. He wouldn't just half-ass his own debut, but you got him. The Drake feature on this thing is pretty cold-blooded. Obviously, Takeoff and Offset, when they appear on this record, it's a pretty natural fit. Cardi B is pretty slick, but really the stunner on the track Champagne. 
Rose is actually a Madonna. Yeah, Madonna is, is literally on this album, singing in this very squeaky, high-pitched, nasally voice that is uh, kind of weird and mystical. It's kind of sweet. She's like a weird, sexy female robot on this track. The groovy, glamorous beat on this song is quite nice, too. Quavo also goes toe-to-toe -to -toe with Travis Scott on a cut on here, with both of them just soaring with reverb and auto-tune on their vocals through a spacey trap beat. And Quavo even goes a little personal, dark, and introspective on the closing cut over here with Kid Cudi. The worst feature easily on this thing is Little Baby on the song Lose It. Once again, he sounds like a boring, comatose, generic brand Young Thug. Like, imagine Young Thug is Fruity Pebbles and Little Baby is whatever the store brand is. But even though the feature on this track stinks, it's really the song being one of the weakest on the entire record that makes it unlistenable. The second worst song, though, easily has to be the track Swing, which sees Quavo trying to make some really bad, gentrified, westernized dance hall. Overall, the guests on this album do a lot to make this thing palatable. Many of them outshine Quavo, and they give him the ability to kind of change up the style and the mood of the album without having to carry a lot of that weight on his own because uh, by himself, he's really not that versatile. Because when he's totally on his own with these tracks, he kind of falls into a pattern of just making really boring Migo songs by himself. The song Lamb Talk is a relatively big single going into this album, but uh, with its skeletal trap beat and its triplet flows, it pretty much sounds like your run-of-the-mill Migos track without the other two Migos. It's kind of like a bad and bougie part two. On the song Workin' Me, Quavo doesn't even sound enthusiastic to be on his own album, even with the titillating topic of the track. And on the song Shine, for some reason, he's desperately ripping off Playboy Cardi's whole shtick, his whole style. Then there's the painfully awkward Big Bro, which just sounds like a bad Travis Scott song. And what's even stranger is the concept of the track. Quavo essentially taking this inexperienced kid under his wing because he's an OG now, though I don't know who in their right mind would take life advice from this guy, as the information he passes on is pretty basic. He also kicks the song off with these weird bars that seem very specifically in reference to Little Peep's death, which a lot of fans took as a diss, but considering the cautionary tone of the song, maybe it's just him trying to impart some, again, advice onto this fictional kid uh, under his wing that he's talking about. The whole structure of the track is a total mess, too. There's a point where the kid tells him, oh, they got my chain, they got me for my chain, and then he's like, okay, all right, I'll help you, but then he doesn't actually help him. He just kind of continues and goes on with the song. So that whole weird storyline just ends up being a diversion and doesn't go anywhere. And that's the thing. There's not really much here in terms of strong topical tracks. And even when Quavo does drop one, it's not really getting to the heart of anything, not really all that focused. Fuck 12, I think, is another example of that, which does have some direct references to police and racism and being black in America, but ultimately the commentary is just so surface level that it doesn't add up to anything. There are a few solo standouts on the album, like the song Biggest Alley-Oop, which I think is mostly great for its haunting la, 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 vocal sampled in the beat. On top of it, Quavo does get a little introspective and personal in terms of how he 
artistically and personally formed into the artists that you see before you making this solo album. There's also the track Huncho Dreams, arguably the most focused concept track on the entire record, which is essentially a lyrical response to Nicki Minaj's Barbie Dreams, where Quavo essentially talks about them having a secret relationship and pulling on her weave and piping it. The song is kind of playful, but it also comes off kind of crass. Like if they did in fact have this relationship that he's rapping about that he's really bitter about the whole thing breaking up. And oddly enough, the song Go All The Way on the album is one that I found to be so bad it was actually kind of good. <laughs> it's like this really bad club song with these robot manipulations on Quavo's vocals as he's rapping, no, no cap. cap. The call and response vocals on the hook are horrendously amazing. You know, one of Quavo's few advantages is just how weird and expressive and animated his voice is. And it was kind of shocking to hear that he doesn't really use that to the degree that he could have on this new album, which I think resulted in a lot of these songs just feeling really drab and boring. Yeah, you know, the, the record really isn't all that good, and I think maybe I like it a little bit more than Culture 2, but I think that's only because this record wasn't so long I wanted to die. Because track for track, I think Quavo Huncho has just about as many highlights as that record did. Just less filler and less crap, but only by virtue of just having less songs overall. And I did really like the variety of the production and guests on this thing. You know, most of the stuff that I liked about this record doesn't really have much directly to do with Quavo, which I, I think really says a lot about the quality of this album. I'm feeling a strong four to a light five on this thing. Transition into the next review. And it's time for a review of the new Clarence Clarity album, Think Peace. This is the newest full-length album from singer, songwriter, super producer, Clarence Clarity, a London native who blew my mind several years ago with the release of his debut full-length album, Know Now. I listened to a bunch of various debut albums throughout the year just to check out what's new, what's interesting, and rarely does a first album put me in a position where it's like, I'm hitting the emergency break. I'm I'm hitting the emergency escape pod. I'm 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 hitting the the fire alarm for good measure because No Now is not only a really impressive first record but also a very inventive and mind-bending take on modern pop music and R&B, especially pop and R&B from the 2000s. This thing is experimental. It's futuristic. It sounds like He's taking ideas from Britney Spears, Christina Aguilera, Justin Timberlake, the boy band era of that decade, glitching them out, warping them, layering them maximally. I mean, while No Now is not a concept album, it is such a goddamn statement. I cannot really think of any other albums this decade that sound like it. It's special. And Clarence Clarity is special. But this album is also a lot to take in. But No Now slowly gained a bit of a cult following online. Also, the production Clarence has done for pop singer Rina Sawayama over the past few years has certainly turned a lot of heads toward him too. And since the release of No Now, he's been randomly dropping singles here and there for this new album. Tracks like Naysayer, Godslayer, Foldem, Vapid Feels, and more. Most of all these tracks end up on this new album. Some of the cuts Clarence has seen fit to release before this record came out over a year ago though. So I feel like my listening to this new album is almost like me recontextualizing the tracks I've been familiar with for a while, 
fitting them into this record and just trying to get a clearer picture of who exactly Clarence Clarity is as an artist now that I have another record to dive into. Because with a debut album as long and as experimental and as versatile as known now, there's no telling where any of this could go next. And after multiple listens of Think Peace, there are several things I can definitively say about this record. One, it's not a huge stylistic change of pace from No Now, so if you were looking forward to seeing Clarence kind of stick to his guns, whatever those weird-ass guns are, then you should be happy. On Think Peace, Clarence is still sounding pretty poppy, odd, kind of futuristic, but also kind of nostalgic. This is also a much shorter and a much more accessible album, too. I wouldn't call a 39-minute album short or scant or anything, but I, I don't know. There's just something about this album that feels so much more like a breeze or a walk in the park in comparison with the very dense and massive No Now. Especially since I think a lot of the tracks on this album are easier to take in, easier to make heads or tails of, and I think that has a lot to do with Clarence actively reeling the instrumentation in a bit on this album. The layering is not nearly as insane. Which, yes, I did really enjoy about the last album, but simultaneously it was probably turning a lot of potential listeners off. So while maybe the overall sound of Think Peace isn't as overwhelming and orgasmic, some of the tracks I think are a bit catchier for the change. And it's interesting to hear Clarence actively make this adjustment on Think Peace because prior he was an artist who was just doing too much, trying to do everything in the world. And now he's just toning it down a little bit to achieve some more accessible results, which for the most part are still pretty creative and off the wall. Because even in this toned down state, Clarence is still a pretty unique voice in pop music, with his quivering vocal harmonies and funky alien instrumental palettes, also loads of psychedelic effects and edits, weird sonic and instrumental transitions between songs, within songs, which are not exploited to the degree that they were on No Now, but they're still here. The highlights on this album for me kick off with the track We Change, which sounds like a fusion between a futuristic pop banger about love and the opening music to a Halloween-themed kids cartoon. Clarence incorporates all these freaky, kind of frightening synth patches, monstrous pitched vocal harmonies, and a post-hook instrumental passage with these heavy, dark synth bass notes, bum, 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 really giving me goosebumps. Literally, it sounds like something out of the show Goosebumps. <laughs> The song at the core of this track is still pretty sad, as it seems to be Clarence reflecting on a love that is, is doomed to fail because while he might be interested in this person or she might be interested in him, her mind or he could change and then the love would be over. And it's like the fear of that is being translated into this spooky, weird instrumental style that is still pretty colorful and off the wall. As I said earlier, the song Naysayer arrives back on this record. I loved it when it came out, still think it's great now. Once again on this song, Clarence is straddling both the future and the past in this one instrumental with more beautiful, quivering, strange vocal leads and harmonies and a killer groove that sounds like the 80s, but it's loaded with things that, that never could have existed in the 80s. It's like nothing but neon pinks and headbands, hairspray and sweat and 
tight workout gear, but it's all happening on the deep web. Now, Clarence has kind of altered this track in its current form on the album in that he's transitioned it into another song, Magic Obeyer. Now it's not just one track, it's a two-part song. This portion of the track features some soaring synth solos, an undeniable bass line. I love the glitchy transition in between these two moments, too. Clarence keeps throwing it back to the 80s on this record with Vapid Feels Ain't Vapid, a track that features a fun, fast, rigid, robotic, but funky bass line. And I love how these moments on the song melt into these beautiful, drippy, syrupy choruses. There's kind of a change of narrative on the song Next Next Best Best Thing, which reads like a statement of Clarence's creative intent fed through a a narrative lens of love as he is singing about not just being the next big thing or the next best thing, but the best thing. And I think he could in fact be if he keeps busting out infectiously catchy tracks like these. I also love how the song ends with Clarence singing about how if he can't be the best, then he'll be dead. But he cuts the word dead off and midword the song's just over. Now, unfortunately, I think this record kind of trails off past the halfway point. I don't hate the track Fold'em with Shaddy, but I feel like this song was a somewhat awkward but admirable first overt attempt at trying to incorporate hip-hop into his usual style. And not only have I not warmed up to the song all that much, but the track feels kind of out of place amongst all these songs that are Super poppy, take on somewhat of an 80s throwback vibe. The -the over-the-top rapping doesn't make its inclusion into the album go over any smoother. And this is another song that suddenly has become a two-parter on the record, too, although its second half is... I don't know, just a mere ambient-ish outro that doesn't really stick out to me as a highlight on the record. If Clarence wanted to pop a track like this into the record where he's doing more of a hip-hop thing, I don't know why it wouldn't be Rafters, which was a single he came out with recently, featuring AJ Crew, and again, a track produced in Clarence's usual style, a bit smoother, a bit poppier, and obviously a hip-hop edge to it, kind of seems like it would have been a lot more harmonious uh, on this new album. On top of that, there are some mellower spots on the second half here that don't really hit quite as hard, not just because they're more subtle, but because maybe the Uh, ballad, the melody, the songwriting isn't quite as captivating. Namely, the closing track, 2016, which seems more like a, uh, a motif than anything. Though I do appreciate what I think Clarence is trying to do on this song in making a statement on, uh, just how, uh, awful of a year 2016, uh, panned out to be and the effects it's continuing to have on the world at large. Singing over and over on the track, In Time, will learn. But yeah, I thought Law of Fives was an okay ballad. Meanwhile, True Love is so easygoing and and incredibly lacking in anything all that quirky or eccentric about it. It just feels like Clarence is emulating some really bland pop music rather than experimenting with it. Overall, I thought Think Peace was a pretty good listen. It feels almost like a simplified, abridged version of No Now. Slightly plainer, slightly more straightforward, but also, in my opinion, slightly less interesting. However, among fans, it does seem to be pretty well-received, as it should be, because there are a lot of good tracks on here. And with many of the songs on this album being pretty digestible in their delivery, I think this record might have a greater chance of 
carrying over to some new fans, even if I don't find it to be as satisfying and bold. But honestly, I think my issues with the record could have been easily overcome with some stronger, more powerful ballads and shows of instrumentation in the second leg. Because while I'm not super crazy about the change of pace that Clarence brought on this record, I think its biggest issue is that it does not end as strong as it starts. I'm feeling a light to decent seven on this album, Transition into the next review. And it is time for a review of the collaborative Zillikami and Sos Mula Project City Morgue Volume 1 Hell or High Water. This is a new collab album from two of the meanest, nastiest rappers out right now, Zillikami and Sos Mula, who have been building a name for their little duo over the past six or seven months with a handful of pretty hot singles off of World Star Hip Hop, tracks like Skatehead and 33rd Black Glass, these heavy, loud trap ragers that bring new meaning to the word banger. The duo hits this level of extreme without necessarily going too experimental or jumping out of the rap genre entirely. I mean, Zillikami's vocals on this project sound more like something that would front an industrial metal band before a hip-hop duo. The evil instrumentals on this thing, a lot of them are packed with these heavy, grinding, distorted new metal guitars. It's almost like a new iteration of rap metal, but the roots of this sound are coming more from the hip-hop side than they are from the rock side. And with the rise of trap, we've seen a lot of aggressive shades of hip-hop over the past couple of years. Not just Zillikami and Sosmilla, who have also collaborated on a three-track EP earlier this year, but also 6ix9ine, JPEG Mafia, Rico Nasty, XXXTentacion, Horror, and Little Gnar, and Scarlord. In this new hyper-aggressive blend of trap, the battle to be heard is getting louder, and it's being fought with volume. And Zilla and Sos blow away much of their competition with the tracks I mentioned earlier on that front. The beats and the vocals on this thing, they're turned up to 11. They're turned up to 13. They're turned up to 666, cause this album is so edgy. But I think in the process of going as hard as they possibly can across a good deal of this record, I think Zilla and Sos have lost sight of any lick of nuance. This thing is 14 tracks, it's 30 minutes, a lot of the songs are about two minutes and change, not a lot of room for fluff or error, not a whole lot of room for changing it up either as it feels like these two are merely just trying to copy over the formula from their three biggest singles again and again and again and again until they fill out a whole record. Which I guess is not a bad starter, a bad taster, if you're a new fan and you just kind of want more of that hype sound that might have gotten you into the duo in the first place. It certainly does establish a sound, an idea, a style, but failing to provide even a little bit of quality and significant variation across this album does lead to a lot of one-dimensional muck. And the only thing that really cuts through it is when Zilla and Sos manage to bang out another super high quality track with an incredibly memorable hook or one of the most extreme vocal performances on the entire record. I mean, there are some really infectious refrains off of the singles that I mentioned earlier. Put a nail in the coffin, lay him down for a minute. Put a nail in the coffin, lay him down for a minute. Chop him off, war dog, let him all off. All I want till you get it gone off. And there are some deep cuts on here that hit equally as hard, whether it be arson or PTSD or the track Grave Hop. 
Grave up! However, there are a handful of cuts on this thing that seem to ease up on the gas a little bit, but it's not like there's so much of a vocal and instrumental or an emotional change of pace that they provide that much counterpoint from some of the more hard-hitting tracks on this thing. They just seem like slightly less abrasive tracks with flatter hooks that really pale in comparison to the more explosive cuts on this record. Talking about tracks like Nuka-Cola and Lamborghini Getaway, Snow on the Bluff, which has easily one of the clunkiest and most long-winded choruses on this entire record. There are a few tracks on this thing that I think suffer from severe missteps as well, like the cut Ken Park, which has this really weird feature on the back end from Black Cray. He sounds half asleep on this song. He barely sticks out of the instrumental. And the song So What, which features this Zilla verse on the back end that is so distorted and fuzzed out and swallowed into the instrumental. It sounds like a total mess. It's barely even legible. His flow comes off really sloppy as well. Generally though, the flows on this album are pretty catchy. However, on the lyrical front, I'm not gonna say the bars on this thing are garbage, but they're super general. The level of violence and sex and drugs that Zilla and Sos put forward on this project isn't really that much deeper than what you might catch on a number of different trap albums. So topically, it's kind of run of the mill. And in terms of word choice and style, it's not really that refreshing either. Occasionally, one of these guys hits a really over the top simile or reference like Sos talking about how he's Bob the Builder, but with a big tool. That was pretty funny. But given the tone of the music and just the overall sound of this thing, I would have figured the lyrics would be a bit darker, stranger, more tortured, more disturbed, but that just doesn't end up being the case. Overall, I liked this project. I think there are a lot of good standouts on it. Occasionally, Sos and Zilla can really drop a fantastic chorus. They hop on some extreme, over-the-top, mind-blowing production that sounds metal or punked out as hell. The whole thing is really aggressive. It's in your face. It's blowing rocket launchers out of your car windows while driving off of a cliff to, to, to your death. But as hard as the duo goes on this album, there's not a lot of substance here, not a lot of versatility here. There's very little in terms of long game because by the halfway point of this album, you've pretty much heard everything the duo has to offer aside from their three best singles, which they see fit to put at the very end, but you know what I'm saying. So while I do love a lot of tracks on this record, I like its style, I like its aesthetic. I just wish there was a little bit more to it. It's a lot of bark, but not a whole lot of really anything else. I'm feeling a light to decent six on this thing. Hey buddy, did you hear the news? It's track reviews. And it is time for a track review. I'm going to be taking on another teaser track, another single from the forthcoming Joji record, Ballads 1, Joji, aka George Miller, formerly Filthy Frank and Pink Guy, now on the 88 Rising label. You guys know by now his transition from YouTube to the music industry, although he, he has not transitioned entirely from memes. Dude is still kind, kind of a memer. Still kind of a memer, but still. Uh, <laughs> new track, Test Drive. I've liked a couple of tracks from this new uh, album so far, as, uh, as far as the teasers go. Um, let's see if some of those improvements that we've heard on the vocal and instrumental front continue on to this new cut that seems to be making the rounds and getting a lot of attention. Again, Joji, Test Drive, Ballads, one album dropping October 26th. Looks like it is 12 tracks, 35 minutes on a giant undertaking. So, uh, yeah, let's give it a shot. Joji, Test Drive, uh, ba-bam!
Okay, Joji, Test Drive, new track, new single over here. Um, yeah, this is probably the least interesting I have found all of these teaser tracks to be so far, honestly. Um, Doug Slow Dancing thought the Clams Casino song could have had more to it, but still was a, a somewhat interesting moment. But this track to me, I'll say that it was not exactly a direct regression to a lot of what he was doing on his In Tongues EP, but it wasn't really that much better. Like, sure, the beat was a bit bouncier, a bit more full as far as texture and sound and color, had a bit more bass and body to it. His lyrics were a bit more dense, had a little bit more going on, but still, the instrumental overall was really redundant. The rhyme scheme was annoyingly repetitive to the point where <laughs> it almost felt like I, I, almost insulting. Like, you know, you, you don't think your audience could handle like a bit more nuanced of a rhyme scheme or something. And finally, um, my least favorite thing about this song, least favorite thing about the track is it just sounds like a Post Malone B-side, dude. It sounds like a Post Malone B-side, you know? It just sounds like a drabber take on, like, what Post was just doing on his last record. It's like a slightly more glistening, atmospheric version of pretty much the same instrumental and vocal style off of that album. I do see Joji vocally breaking away from that a little bit. When he gets into this deep, moany register that um, kind of reminds me of the front man of that band Beirut, Zach Condon, for some reason. Uh, on the bridge, if I didn't specify that already, on the bridge of the track, which I thought was pretty neat. Uh, was a good change-up, but for the most part, this just sounds like a Post Malone leftover. A boring, bland, riding on dude's coattails Post Malone leftover. Which is really the, the least gratifying thing about it. So, I don't know, man. Not really that great lyrically. Not really my favorite tune I've heard of these singles so far. And really the least original and memorable in terms of sound. I mean, so close to posty style that, you know, I in passing, I could mistake it for just like a Post Malone song or something if I wasn't paying attention. Again, I feel like this is another moment vocally for Joji uh, that just feels really bland and run-of-the-mill. And and I've had my issues with his vocal range and delivery before in that it feels very nondescript and very drab. And I think some of his latest tracks have changed my mind about that a little bit. It seems like he's kind of getting into his upper register a little bit. He's getting a bit bolder and more passionate in his singing. But this song is definitely not an example of that. And I think I will leave it at that. Uh, didn't really dig this track all that much. Just felt like fodder. Just felt like filler. And it is time for a track review of the brand new posthumous single from Little Peep, Cry Alone. It has been formally announced that Peep has a posthumous album on the way, Come Over When You're Sober, Part 2. That's dropping in November, toward the start of the month. Now, you guys know from my recent track review of that cut that... Uh, he had teamed up on with XXX Tentacion. And the reason that I say teamed up is because uh, obviously neither of them were alive when the song was 
eventually finished and released. So if either artist really wanted to make any kind of alterations to the track past what they had already contributed, uh, who knows? You know, I mean, even as is with its recent release, it felt very unfinished. I have a hard time believing that either artist would want to simply leave the song at what it was when it came out recently. So I digress there. But uh, hopefully whatever is shaping up to be released on this forthcoming sequel to Come Over When You're Sober is a bit more completed. As of right now, I'm not exactly familiar 100% with what the completion process of this project was, how completed it originally was upon his passing. So maybe this new track over here, Cry Alone, will give us a bit of insight into that. Going to give it a shot, going to see if I dig it or don't. Uh, hopefully I enjoy it more than a lot of what was on his last full-length album. Lil Peep, Cry Alone, let's give it a shot. Ba-bam! Okay, um, I have mixed feelings on this track, but I'll say overall they're mostly positive. The production, for one, is pretty good, and I don't mean to say that merely because I think the the beat is totally amazing or groundbreaking or anything, but I do think the fact that the the beat is pretty detailed and able to distract from the fact that lyrically and structurally there's not a whole lot to the track. It's kind of basic. It's a little repetitive at points. Because there aren't a lot of major changes to the structure, I feel like some of the instrumental swaps, some of the filters thrown on the beat definitely do feel like, okay, even though I'm hearing a lot of the same parts over and over and over, we're still hitting some nice progressions throughout the song to prevent it from feeling super stale or redundant. So production definitely gets a huge check for me on this track. But the flavor of the beat is actually pretty interesting and a little different than what I've heard from Peep on his last full-length record. I mean, I think people could very easily and rightfully couch Come Over When You're Sober Part 1 as being in this overall emo rap trend. But there's actually something particularly grungy about the guitar tones on this track because we are talking about a trap instrumental with some guitars weaved in and with some spacey vocal effects here and there. But given the tone of the guitar, given some of the guitar chords, and actually given Peep's muttered and subdued vocal melody on this track, there's something very Nirvana about this song. There's something very Kurt Cobain about it. Yeah, I mean, this is this is exactly a melody that I could hear Kurt singing on, you know, a uh, more downtrodden or morose part of Nevermind uh, or In Utero. Uh, however, I feel like Nirvana or Kurt would have really kind of added another part to the track. And really, that's what I think the song is ultimately missing. Even though the lyrics and the vocal melody are simple, I do like the sense of intense loneliness and bitterness and hatred coming out of the lyrics. I mean, it does definitely feel very potent and it is kind of compelling. Also, some of the lyrics on this thing about him essentially wanting to burn down his school or put his haters or his doubters in an awkward position, telling them, oh, look at me now, uh, certainly does have a chilling and a kind of bittersweet element to it for very obvious reasons. But if this was going to be a completely finished song or a track that was really following in the footsteps of its obvious influences, it would hit us with a hook or something explosive that actually feels like a real transition 
out of the verses. And again, that's kind of my prime issue with this track. The verses and the choruses really just sound and feel too much alike. This track really could have used a bit more variation. Who knows if Peep would have actually added that in the creative process of this new album. I mean, there certainly were some hooks that really popped and transitioned away musically and sonically from the verses on Come Over When You're Sober Part 1. So again, there are things that I like about the track, but I just worry about elements of this song being a little too redundant and elements of other tracks on the album potentially being unfinished. And you would hope with this track being kind of a lead single that this is one of the better and uh, more hard-hitting cuts on the entire record. Not that it would take a whole lot to attract fans to this album because hardcore peep fans want to hear some of the leftover stuff, no doubt. But I'm going to leave it at that. Thought it was a pretty decent song. Before we head into the next review, I want to give a shout out to one of the sponsors of the show, the good people over at Turntable Lab. They have hooked the needle drop up with a nice sponsorship link. So if you guys hit up turntablelab.com slash the needle drop, you'll find a lot of colorful pressings of records that I reviewed on the channel. Treat yourself to some music, treat yourself to some vinyl, help out the show on the podcast at the same time. It's that simple. Again, turntablelab.com slash Fantano. That's turntablelab.com slash Fantano. And let me talk real quick, relatively quick. (laughs) Let me rant here about this new video clip that has come out via a new HBO sports program that has been launched by LeBron James. It's called The Shop. And it's, it's kind of a casual hangout discussion show where LeBron invites on other athletes, entertainers, and they're, they're kind of in a very posh-looking barbershop setting, and wine's getting kicked back, and discussions are being had, and so on and so forth. And th- this, this big breakout episode that has been released uh, features Drake. And there's a lot of different conversations going on across the episode, but there is a specific point in this episode where Drake essentially goes into the whole behind-the-scenes aspect and and his whole mentality going through the whole Pusha T beef, the diss tracks going back and forth, so on and so forth. And it, it does re- reveal a lot of interesting things, stuff that has for a while been rumored, but at this point pretty much confirmed that Drake met up with Kanye prior to the release of some of their, mo- the, their most recent works and he said, oh, I want to work with you. Come on, come to Wyoming, come collaborate with me. Drake ends up writing for Kanye. Drake thought he was going to, little, going to get a bit more sort of artistic support coming from the other direction. Drake talks about his son, who is pretty much secret at the time and was talking about some of the personal issues he was going through and theorizes, and and not that it takes a lot to sort of connect the dots here, but still, uh, theorizes that that connection with Kanye, that meeting with Kanye where he gave him that information, he was writing for him, so on and so forth, uh, that led to Kanye sharing that information with Pusha T. Pusha T puts it in the song, exposes Drake, embarrasses him, puts all of his personal information out there, and Drake essentially just kind of feels hurt because he trusted Kanye. He let Kanye into his life. He thought he was being a buddy and being a pal and being cool and being chill, but he double-crossed him. 
And so, so that's kind of the gist of the conversation. That's kind of the gist of the, the heartbreak. And breaking this down, essentially, what does it mean? A, a few things. For one, Kanye is most definitely a snake. Like that, that's some real snake-like behavior. I don't really think there's any doubting that Kanye uh, is is acting pretty weird these days. And it's it's strange not only to hear from Drake, who in this very puffy conversation piece, which is only meant to make all parties look great and correct and right in all of their decisions and choices, uh, even though some of the interactions between <laughs> Drake and LeBron are very weird in terms of you know, oh, I, I told him I'd, I'd never be, uh, what, not, not proud of him or disappointed in him no matter what he did and so on and so forth. What I find kind of funny about Kanye's role in this is that he seemed pretty quick to jump out there and say, hey, it's all about love. I, I'm not, uh, the beef is over. The beef is done. When clearly, like, you had a big role in kind of getting the ball rolling on the whole thing. Maybe you didn't think you were playing as large of a role as you were by just merely producing for Pusha T behind the scenes. Maybe you were a little angry about Drake's prior shot at Kid Cudi, and maybe you were still feeling some type of way over that, and you felt justified in your actions. Still, if you're going to go at somebody, doing it in kind of a roundabout backwards, hey, I'm going to be your friend, and then turn on you, uh, in 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 one moment without you uh, being able to predict it, it's it's not exactly sportsmanlike. You know what I mean? Uh, although, still, I'm, I'm going to kind of get into the uh, mentality behind that deeper into the video. So there is that. Uh, the the other part of it is I wonder why Drake sort of fed so deeply into Kanye in the first place because Kanye he he hasn't exactly been acting right lately. Number one. Number two, this is also Mr. No New Friends. That's Drake's MO. I'm too big. I'm too above it all. I'm too famous. I'm too successful to get uh, embroiled in all this rap drama, beef, uh, friendship, whatever. So I'm, I'm just flying above all of it like I'm God. And thirdly, Kanye was still buddies with Pusha T, pretty close president of his record label. And Pusha T has gone at you numerous times. And as far as I can tell... That beef has not been ameliorated or anything like that, assuming the the tensions are still going on. And I mean, maybe you thought it was a little different because it was Kanye, but still, they're, they're pretty close. And one of his right-hand men is actively dissing you in tracks. I mean, sure, it's been a while, but still. That's just kind of somebody who I would look at skeptically no matter what, no matter how much I held their art in high regard, which Drake most definitely does because, I mean, if it weren't for records like 808s, I don't even know if Drake would even have a career. So coming out of this clip with a lot of the information I already had going into it pretty much confirmed, yeah, I, I can say Kanye is looking pretty two-faced, but the last point that I want to make in this video is that ultimately, I don't really know if any of it matters because here's one thing nobody's ever going to say. I'm just not going to listen to Kanye West anymore because of how he treated Drake. No one thinks that. <laughs> and nobody's ever going to think that. And maybe Drake doesn't even think that that's going to be the case. But but here's the thing. 
ultimately Drake's feelings being hurt over the expose, over the stuff that Pusha T said, stuff that he thinks that he should get punched in the fucking face. Uh, look, the, it's diss songs. It's blood sport. It, it's, it's in hip hop. It's as close as you can get to blood sport without literally punching and killing each other. So especially in battle rap, there's a long history of shit not really being off limits. And there's not really much, much else you can say. You know, it's, it's really about who can cut the deepest into the other person personally and emotionally so that they are thrown off their game, they're hurt, they're embarrassed. It's literally weaponizing your language. And sure, there are some uh, casual hip-hop fans or some uh, people who think that they are too civilized or deep or educated uh, to really appreciate the point of all of it. But I would argue to those people that it was not intended for you. It's not for you. And the only reason you're exposed to it is because hip-hop is mainstream as the zeitgeist right now. If this were some other random jackass versus some other random rapper jackass's diss track, you wouldn't, be, you wouldn't even be paying attention to it. But because it's Pusha T and because it's Drake, you know about it. And that's all. And because it's blood sport, no, nobody's going to really hold Pusha T's words against him. Nobody's really going to hold Kanye's actions against him. And ultimately, at the end of the day, I don't think that Drake or Kanye or Push's career has really been hurt by any of this. In fact, all of them made money off of it is, is really what happened at the end of the day. You know, as Drake says, oh, I took that energy, I put it into me. And I made all these songs that people love. And I had songs that prior uh, for Scorpion, I, I didn't have before and so on and so forth. So maybe even in a roundabout personal way, this was uh, a W for Drake, even if he didn't come out on top with the diss tracks because it did bring a lot of attention to him, created a lot of buzz, a lot of press, a lot of promotion that he did not have going into the release of Scorpion because uh, a lot of the singles going up to the release of that record were not that hot were not that hot. And people were not going into that record thinking, oh man, I got to hear Drake's new direction and his new sound. People went into that new record thinking, oh man, I got to hear if he addresses this Pusha thing. I got to hear him rap about his kid. I got to hear him sort of uh, go deeper narratively into all the drama that's been happening over the past few weeks. And uh, which, which most definitely caused listeners to listen to that album more deeply than I think they would have otherwise. So I think all three of them benefited off of it. So because of that, there's really no reason for any fans in any one artist camp to look at one of them the wrong way, because at the end of the day, this is going to be all water off of a duck's back. Drake may have been a little emotional and a little upset about all of it, and rightly so, because he was definitely put into a, a corner, into an awkward situation. But here's the thing. I think Drake could have most definitely avoided being in that awkward situation if he did not play around acting like he was about it. But he's fucking not. He's a pop star who raps. He is not a battle rapper. 
and he's not even a rapper who makes his name off of diss track. Sure, you could point to the Meek diss, but that was the easiest fucking layup anybody in the history of diss tracks has ever been handed in hip hop, period. Drake came out with two really compelling tracks. Meek took forever to respond, and when he eventually did, it was garbage. Anybody going at a rapper whose response was as trash as Meek's was, instant W, instant W. It was made easy for Drake. And unfortunately, because of that, Drake, I think, got high off the smell of his own farts, and he heard that push diss track, and he was probably feeling some type of way about the Kanye connection, and thought, well, I got to respond to this. Because I do diss tracks and I can diss with the best of him when, in fact, you can't. Because when somebody says something that's a bit too mean or a bit too personal or exposes some information that people didn't have access to yet publicly, you flake, you fold, and you disappear. And I understand why Drake would rather make money and make chart hits then focus on making diss tracks at this guy who he is more popular than ultimately. You know, it's a business move. It makes sense. If I was in that situation, I'd make the same decision. But if I was in that situation, I wouldn't be pretending like I was anything other than what I was, which is a pop artist who raps. So please continue in that lane because you're, you're not about the diss tracks. You're not about getting into the into the muck with any random rapper who steps to you. You're not about all that free smoke, okay? So Kanye Snake, Drake's a paper tiger, and uh, yeah, I guess I'm just going to leave it at that. And that is going to be it for this latest episode of the Needle Drop Podcast, everybody. Thank you for listening. Hope you are doing well. You can hit up theneedledrop.com, youtube.com slash theneedledrop, and youtube.com slash Fantano to catch up and keep up to date on all of our latest news and reviews. Also, shout out to Jonah, who continually produces and pulls this podcast together every week. Hope all you guys are doing well. Also, you can hit me up on afantano at Instagram and twitter.com slash the needle drop for all of your social media needs. And we will catch you guys in the next episode. Thank you very much. Forever. Forever. Mm-hmm.